Uh, as you're turning there, uh, you'll notice in your bulletin, which I don't have with me, toward the back, a new thing that we're trying out, uh, especially uh, kids of the church. Uh, if you look on that page, we have there listed a number of words. And uh, the goal here is uh, to sort of challenge you kids as you listen to the sermon this morning uh, to look out for these words. I think I listed about 20 in there. I think I repeated one word twice, so you get kind of a two for one there. But here's my challenge to you. You look at those words. There should be about 20 of them. And if you hear me say them in the service, circle them. Okay, listen out for them. And if you hear all 20 words and you circle all of them, no cheating, you hear all the words, you circle them, and you present that to me at the door at the end of the service, I'll have a treat for you, okay? I'll have a little gift for you, okay? This is to encourage you uh, to listen up in the sermon. And we probably need to have an age cutoff. I didn't think of this till just now. We'll say 13 and under. <laughs> Children 13 and under may participate in this, this activity, okay? As you look over that list, you may uh, see most of these words are pretty common. I think you've had a good chance to hear them in this sermon. But you may see toward the bottom the word sluice gate. And you might be thinking, what in the world? What even is a sluice gate? Who would ever use that term? I have no hope of hearing that word in a sermon. And I sympathize with you. I didn't even know what a sluice gate was until about a week ago. And I never thought I'd hear it in church until Pastor Brad used it. Uh, at the budget meeting the other night. I think something about a sluice gate opening so relational juices can flow. I think that was the exact phrase. So uh, now I've said it like six times, and so you can just circle that one, okay? Let's read together Matthew 5, verses 1 through 6. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray one more time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please humble us before your word. Help us to assume a lowly and receptive posture to receive what it is you would speak to us and teach us through your word and through preaching. Please come and speak to us the oracles of God. Please reveal your will to us. Please show us how to live, how to walk in the path that is blessed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What is the instinctive response in your own heart when you hear me read that verse aloud? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. D.A. Carson says this, thorough righteousness is often parodied as some form of obsolete Victorian prudishness or narrow-minded and vehement legalism. The pursuit of righteousness is not popular even among professing Christians. 
Many today are prepared to seek other things, spiritual maturity, real happiness, the Spirit's power, effective witnessing skills. Other people chase from preacher to preacher and conference to conference, seeking some vague blessing from on high. They hunger for spiritual experience. They thirst for the conscience of God. But how many hunger and thirst for righteousness? End quote. I ask again, when you think of righteousness, what do you think? When I speak of righteousness, what comes to your mind? What occurs in your heart? What is Jesus speaking of concerning righteousness in this text before us? And what should we make of it? Well, much, of course, depends on how we understand that word righteousness and what hungering and thirsting for it entails. So I propose to open up this passage this morning under three simple headings. Point number one, what is the nature of the righteousness envisioned in this text? Number two, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? And number three, what is promised to those who hunger and thirst for for righteousness. Consider with me that first question, point number one, what is the nature of the righteousness envisioned in this text? You understand, I hope, you have been Christians for some time or been reading the Bible for some time, that the word righteousness can be used in different ways in the Bible. It can be used actually in a number of different ways depending on the context. What we're interested in is what this word righteousness means here, what it means in this passage. And there are different takes on what the righteousness envisioned here in Matthew 5, 6 actually is. Some may suggest the righteousness envisioned here is the righteousness of Christ credited to our account through faith. So Paul said in Philippians 3, 9, I want to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Speaking about a righteousness that Christ is pleased to give us, a God is pleased to give us justification through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us also in Romans 4 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, a quote from Genesis 15:6. We too, new covenant believers, who have faith like Abraham are given the gift of righteousness. We have credited to our account, reckoned to our account, a divine righteousness that is ours, not through works of the law, not through our own personal righteousness, but purely and totally and only through faith in Jesus Christ. Such that it can be said, Romans 4, 5, that God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the wicked. He makes righteous those who are in their experience actually unrighteous. Well, this is blessedly true, blessedly true. All of us who are in Christ are robed in Christ's perfect righteousness. Isaiah told us this would happen, Isaiah 53, verse 11, by his knowledge shall my servant, the righteous one, make many to be accounted righteous, and hasn't he done it? We have no hope outside of this. This is marvelously true that we are counted right in God's eyes through justification by faith, through what Jesus Christ has done in our place to make us, to count us, to reckon to us a righteousness that is not our own. And it's through that righteousness that we can be justified, counted right in the sight of God. Blessedly true, we should sing about it, we should preach about it, we should remind one another of it, 
It's a glorious truth. But it is not the idea in our passage. It's true enough as that doctrine is, it's not the idea that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, verse 6. When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's not talking about a divine righteousness, an alien righteousness that is credited to our account as a gift through faith. As some may suggest still that this righteousness has to do with a social vision of the world, a righteous vision of society. We want to live, don't we, in a world where righteousness and justice prevail. And so some have viewed this as a kind of social righteousness. Thus, the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is the one who hungers and thirsts for a better world and presumably makes efforts to realize that better world where righteousness and justice prevail. They want to see the world prize righteousness more and more. Well, now there's a sense in which this is true and this is implied in our text, but it's downstream, I think, of the main meaning that Jesus has in mind. It's a secondary kind of meaning that we can draw from this passage. It's not the main thing, though an implication of the main thing. So what is then the main idea? What does Jesus mean when he speaks of us hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What's the idea behind that word righteousness in this text? Well, a logical question to ask Bible people who want to study out these issues is how does Matthew tend to use the word in his gospel? When he uses the word righteousness, what does he normally mean when he uses the term? We might look at other references to the word righteousness in the whole book or maybe even in the immediate context to try to see how the term is being used. And what we will find if we do that is that the word righteousness in Matthew has a pretty stable and consistent meaning throughout the book. And here it is. Righteousness in Matthew, and in this particular text, refers to a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. A pattern of life in conformity to God's will. Righteousness refers to a life lived in personal holiness. A pattern of life in conformity to God's will. It's talking about the kind of life, the quality of life that should characterize those who are the Lord's disciples. And we don't have to look very far to see the same use of the term righteousness in the book of Matthew. Just look at Matthew 5 verse 10. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, he's not talking about a kind of righteousness that is shared by the wider society. He's not talking about divine righteousness that is credited to us. He's talking about how we live in accord with Jesus' principles, with His commands and His precepts. As we live our lives in conformity to God's will, there's a kind of hostility and opposition that will come to us on account of a righteous life, a life lived in righteousness. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You'll see this idea in Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus tells us, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, we who are the Lord's disciples must be marked by a genuine righteousness of heart that is not like the pretended, feigned, faco self-righteousness of the Pharisees, but is rather a righteousness, a quality of life that really does mark our lives as the people of God and exceeds that of the false righteousness of the Pharisees. You can look at Matthew 6, verse 1 in the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. What's he saying? Righteousness of life is something we practice. It has to do with our pattern of life, with how we walk, with how we live. Righteousness in Matthew has to do with a life lived in conformity to God's will. Therefore, 
The person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is the person who hungers and thirsts for a life lived in conformity to the will of God. This person delights in God's commandments. He wants to know the way of righteousness. He wants to pursue those virtues and those character traits and those ideals that Christ identifies as the marks of a truly godly and upright person. Holiness and righteousness of life are precious to him, and so he makes this his aim and goal. It is his joy and delight to walk in the path of righteousness. This isn't far removed from what Jesus himself says. In John 4, verse 34, there Jesus says to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's like food to me. It's what I want. I want to live in conformity to the will of my Father. I mentioned in an earlier sermon that there are some parallels between the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 11, and Psalm chapter 1, where we're told about the blessed man. And what marks the blessed man? You have these two ways to live, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And what marks the way of the righteous? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. His delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night, and that man will prosper. He'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water. He's going to flourish as he walks in accordance with his Father's will, as he walks in accord with the precepts of the Lord. The attitude toward the will of God taken by the blessed man or woman in Matthew 5, 6, the attitude taken toward this kind of righteousness mirrors the attitude that David acknowledges in Psalm 19. If you would, please turn to Psalm 19. We're going to sing a paraphrase of Psalm 19, God willing, at the conclusion of this message. I just want you to look at verses 7 through 11 and notice here two things. David will extol and honor God's law and God's will, make a statement extolling the righteousness that the Lord lays out for His people in His law, His will, His precepts. And then He will talk about the effect that that righteousness has on our hearts, what our response is to the Lord's righteous precepts. So David says this, Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I just gotta pause you for a minute. Let this perspective on the law of God rebuke the sort of parodied and ridiculous sort of statements that are made about God's law in our day. Like some about we who are Christians, we talk bad about the law, we don't need the law, we're grace, not law people. Let this psalm recalibrate our thinking about the will of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. This is how the blessed man or woman in Matthew 5, 6 thinks of righteousness, of God's law. God's will is good. His will is right. His righteous standards are wonderful and beautiful, and I want them. I want to bring my life in conformity to His will. I want to live a life characterized by true, personal, practical, experiential righteousness. 
So what is the nature of the righteousness envisioned in this text? It is nothing other than personal holiness. A righteous life lived in conformity to God's laws and precepts. So we're talking about the life you and I wish to live. A life of righteousness, holiness, and godliness. That's what's commended in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Life lived in conformity to the will of God. Now the second question, the second main heading this morning. We've asked, what is the nature of the righteousness envisioned in this text? It's talking about a quality of life that should mark the lives of believers. Now secondly, what does it mean then to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What characterizes the man or woman who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Well, notice the verbs, hunger and thirst. Jesus does not say, blessed are those who think righteousness is important. Blessed are those who have intelligently determined the ceteris paribus, all factors being equal, controlling for outliers and the standard deviation, that on balance, righteousness is a good thing. No, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is talking about an appetite of the soul. It's talking about an inner ache for righteousness, a craving for holiness, a hungering and a thirsting for godliness. Blessed are the ones who are starving for righteousness, thirsting parched that they might experience more holiness and godliness in their own lives. It's like the language of Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now my guess would be that most of us have never experienced the kind of hunger or thirst that borders on starvation. Maybe you have, I never have. Uh, the Lord has wonderfully blessed my life. I've never, I've maybe gone a day without food. That's about it. That's probably most of us. Uh, but if you have ever experienced that, you talk to people who have experienced going days on end without food or without water, do you know what begins to happen to you in that scenario? You sort of begin to lose your rational senses. And one thing dominates your life and focus where can I find bread? Where can I have a morsel of food? Is it here? Is it there? I need to satisfy this ache, this hunger that I have. Or if you're parched and you're dehydrated, all you can think about is water. Some of you folks who will punish your bodies by running marathons and ultra marathons, maybe you drink water along the way, maybe you don't, I don't know how that works. But I bet by the end of the race, you're wanting to hydrate. And maybe eat bunch of carbs or something like that. You know what that feels like. That's the idea in our passage. I'm aching. I'm starving. I have an appetite for righteousness and for holiness. It begins to dominate my thinking. I must be holy. I want to walk in righteousness. I want to slay my sin and put on more the virtues and the precepts that are to mark the Lord's people. The woman who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is the woman whose mind is dominated by this pursuit of holiness. Like our whole being is crying out, I want to walk in righteousness. I must be holy. I want to be like my Lord. I want to follow His will. 
The one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness understands something of the prayer of Robert Murray McShane. Uh, Robert Murray McShane was a Scottish pastor in the 19th century, early 19th century. Uh, Some of you I know are reading his memoirs right now. Uh, excellent, excellent book, one of my favorite books. We gave it out to the pastors that feed my sheep. You don't have to be a pastor to profit from that book. And uh, he died when he was 29. And what we have in the memoirs are some of his journals, his letters, his sermons, uh, things like that. And in one of the recorded journal entries, he recorded this prayer, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Lord, I want to be as holy as a redeemed sinner, as a forgiven sinner, can be. How does that hit you? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Does it sound a little foreign or fanatical to you? I mean, come on, I'm a Christian, but isn't that kind of getting carried away a little bit? I want to be as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. What do you hear that? And it resonates with your soul. Like you say, amen. Oh, I want to be as holy as I could. I want to be more and more like my Savior. I hunger and thirst for that kind of righteousness. And I want the Lord by His grace and by His Spirit to make me to be as righteous and holy a man or woman as I could be. It's a good test of your spiritual health, how you react to a prayer like that. You possess this kind of hunger and thirst for righteousness, certain things will begin to mark your life. You will first develop a hatred of sin and a zealous commitment to mortify it. You will mourn over your sin, as we saw in the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. You'll mourn over your sin because it grieves you. Look on a heart level, it grieves you to sin against your Lord. And you will become determined to make no provision for the flesh, but to mortify its desires and its lusts. And you will declare all-out warfare on your sin. You read books like John Owen's On the Mortification of Sin, and you will put a battle plan into place in your own life. And you'll start going to war against your lusts and your pride, your self-pity and your envy and your bitterness and your unforgiveness and your greed. And you say, I've had it with my sin. I'm going to choke it out at the root. I will not stop until I walk over the belly of my lusts. I will slay my sin by the help of the Holy Spirit. I want to be rid of it. I want to remove every obstacle to fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, any obstacle to the pursuit of righteousness. I want to walk in holiness. But if you truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be marked not only by a hatred of sin, but also a positive delight in God's law, the kind of delight that we saw mirrored in David in Psalm 19. You will give attention to the Lord's will, and you will labor to grow in gradual obedience to it. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, His precepts will appear lovely to you. You'll read the Beatitudes, and you'll think, isn't this just right? Isn't this just how it should be? Isn't this wonderful? This standard of righteousness, this picture of righteousness, I want my life to be marked by these things. I see that this is truly the good, the true, and the beautiful, and I want to attach my soul to this. I want to walk in the kind of righteousness that marked my Lord. Righteousness will appear beautiful to you and wonderful to you, but it won't just be a hatred of sin and the love of God and His law that will mark you. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
What will mark you further will be a love and an irresistible admiration for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, after all, the righteous one. These righteous standards are a reflection of his person and his heart. And your love for what you see in the perfect son of righteousness will lead into a kind of daily walking with him, following him, fellowshipping with him. We observe this in the first sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, a month or so ago now, maybe more than that, that part of the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is not just to, dis, uh, uh, to, to teach us uh, how to live righteous lives, but also to point us to the person of Jesus Christ himself. The law reveals to us the character of the lawgiver. Jesus, in these Beatitudes, is giving us a window into his heart. Well, when you peer through that window that we have in Matthew 5, 1 through 11, do you say, this is lovely. How beautiful is the Lord. How wonderful is the Son of God. If this is righteousness, oh, I don't only want it, I want Him, the righteous one. Do these Beatitudes lead you to hunger and thirst after Christ Himself and the beauty of His person and His character that He is revealing to us? Is He perfectly lovely and beautiful to you? Is He everything your soul wants and desires? And do you say not only, I want His righteousness to cover me, but I want His righteousness to mark me. I don't just want His obedience in my place, I want to be like Him. I want to look more and more like my Savior, who is in every way beautiful and perfect and lovely. I want to be conformed after His image. I want to walk according to His precepts. Friends, let's just be clear, unless this has popped up in, to anyone's mind here this morning. What I'm talking about is not legalism. It's not works righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. People will sometimes talk this way. Oh, you, you really think you're righteous, don't you? Oh, well, isn't she holy? Oh, you really, you really think you're pious, trying to be all pious. What's happened? Righteousness, holiness, and piety have become a put-down. They've become like epithets. You're so holy, you want to be so righteous. Friends, personal righteousness and holiness and piety of character and of heart is one of those precious things in the world. To the Christian, it's a lovesome thing. The Lord's precepts are more to be desired than gold. What about much fine gold, even much fine gold? Sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Do you see the Lord's precepts as right? His commands as good. The way of righteousness as blessed. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Don't let anyone tell you you're a legalist or you're self-righteous because you want to be as holy as it is possible for a pardoned sinner to be. People spend all their lives trying to develop the perfect golf swing or the perfect recipe for cookies. They'll get all their financial arrangements 
perfectly set in place, or to develop the perfect kind of schooling plan for your kids. What's worth far more of our attention and energy than all of this is the pursuit of holiness. Those who make righteousness their great aim, they will be blessed, the Lord says. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you will be blessed of God. You will have God's approval. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But now thirdly and finally, third question this morning. What is the nature of the righteousness envisioned in this text? Point number one, it is life lived in conformity to the will of God. Point number two, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's to crave at the level of the appetites of the soul to be like the Lord Jesus and to follow His precepts. Thirdly and finally, and briefly, what is promised to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? The ESV says they will be satisfied. And some translations read they will be filled. That's probably the better and more literal translation, they will be filled. Uh, the idea behind the word is actually a very, uh, I want to say carnal word. I don't mean carnal in a sinful way. It's a very human uh, kind of word, fleshly kind of word. To be filled is simply to be stuffed. Look, I can't eat another bite. It was usually used with reference to animals. If the animal had had enough to eat, it would be filled. I can't have any more. I've had all that I need to have. I'm filled. I'm satisfied. There was a man in our home not long ago. Uh, the Lord has blessed Jenna with the ability to cook well, and she had made this great dinner, and he sat down, and he said, oh, I just, I feel so good. I'm just satisfied, full. Oh, this feels great. It's really sweet of him to say that. That's kind of the idea here. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who seek righteousness, they will be filled, they will be satisfied, they'll feel good and whole and filled on the very thing that they seek. And you may wonder, well, what does that mean precisely, though? Then I would say a precise meaning is not exactly given. Many of these Beatitudes have a kind of poetic ring to them, right? Uh, uh, they, they sort of elude mechanical, cerebral, precise uh, definitions. It's kind of like how poetry works. My wife was reading recently T.S. Eliot, uh, The Four Quartets, and I said, are you liking it? She's like, yeah, I really like it. I think I understand what he's saying, but I may have no idea what he's saying. And that's how poetry works. Poetry is meant to expand meaning, not constrain it. It's meant to inspire and to open up more chambers of meaning than maybe you can precisely sort of keep in a box and in a logical kind of frame. I think something like that's going on in this verse. Moreover, there is a kind of harmony and parallelism in these beatitudes where the, the reward always sort of exactly corresponds with the virtue itself that's commended. So, blessed are those who mourn for what? They shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are merciful for what? They shall be shown mercy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be what? They'll be filled. What exactly does that mean? I don't know exactly, but at the very least, I think it means this. They will have the thing they're searching for. They will be filled up on the righteousness that they seek. Those who search for righteousness make obedience to the Lord's precepts, their aim. They won't miss the mark. If they in sincerity and in humility want to walk in holiness, the Lord will enable them to do it. They will be filled on the righteousness they seek. And how unlike so many of the things we search after in life. People go to LA or they go to Manhattan in search of fame and fortune and those cities chew them up and spit them out. They don't find the thing that they seek for. There are people that seek all kinds of pleasure through money and, and, and sex and all kinds of things and they come at the end of their life empty. 
Well, those who pursue righteousness, who hunger and thirst for the Lord's precepts, for godliness, they'll never be disappointed. That's the idea. They will obtain the thing they seek. They will be enabled by God's help to become more righteous. I close with a question, and then I'd like to offer a point of clarification. A question, and then a point of clarification. First, the question, and it's a personal question, and I want to ask that you think honestly in your own heart, not asking for a show of hands. I want to know in your own heart. Assess yourself as I ask this question. My friend, what is your attitude toward the pursuit of righteousness? What's the disposition of your heart, the attitude of your soul toward the pursuit of righteousness? I love the title of J.I. Packer's book. I recommend it often, A Quest for Godliness. J. Bridges has a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. Does that mark your life? I'm on a quest for godliness. I'm pursuing holiness. I'm hungering, thirsting, and pining after righteousness. The great aim in my life is to be like my Lord. I want to give myself to following Him, to serving Him, to being like Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great 20th century preacher, in his commentary on Matthew 5, 6, says this, the verse we've been considering. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And Lloyd-Jones says this, quote, I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, Lloyd-Jones says, then you had better examine the foundations again. What's he saying? He's saying the positive desire and craving and appetite and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and godliness and holiness is a good sign. I said in or equip class, just as there are marks of believers, there are marks of unbelievers. Unbelievers don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. If you find in your heart, with all honesty, so many failings, we prayed in our prayer of confession, acknowledge our manifold sins before God. You know I fail so often, I'm not what I hope to be, what I want to be. I'm so disappointed and disillusioned with myself in all the ways I fail. But I can say in truth, I want to be like my Lord. I, I want to walk in righteousness. Where does that desire come from? If not from the Spirit of God. To want to pursue a positive quest for godliness. To want to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. To want to put to death your sins and to more and more live in obedience to the precepts of your Savior. Where do you think that comes from? My friend, be encouraged. If you can say in all honesty and in truth, I do feel within me, though I'm a terrible, miserable failure, I do nonetheless feel within me, experientially, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Finally, you have great reason to be encouraged. However, if this does not mark you, you say, I don't know what Alex has been blabbering on about this morning. It sounds a little weird to me. It sounds a little fantastical to me. I, I don't 
have anything in me that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. It might be time, as Lloyd-Jones says, to explore the foundations again. Here's why that's such an issue. Because if you don't find righteousness lovely and attractive and godliness good and holiness right, you will never be interested in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't want Him. Where do you think this vision of righteousness comes from? It proceeds from His heart, from His being. Isaiah says He is the righteous one, and He's showing us what righteousness looks like. And if righteousness is not attractive to you, well, the Lord Jesus will never be attractive to you. He'll never be lovely to you. And you say, well, that, that sounds like a problem. What should I do? Well, my advice to you would not be that you begin to go through the Beatitudes and try harder to follow the Beatitudes. I'd encourage you to go to Christ, to look at Him, to study Him, to ask God to help you to see Him for all that He is as the righteous one, as the holy one, as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, as the one who in love and mercy has come for sinners like you and me. And to see in His perfect humility and His compassion something beautiful, something lovely, something that's meant, my friend, to ravish and captivate your soul. And then proceeding out from that picture of the righteous one, you will find righteousness lovely. Now, this picture of holiness that we see here, it'll never be lovely to you until Christ becomes lovely to you. Those of us here who can truly say we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's only because we've come to know the righteous one. God has enabled us to see the beauty of His perfections in the person of Jesus Christ. And He has enabled us to turn from our sins and put our faith and trust in Him and to be enlisted now as His followers. That has now become our delight to walk in His precepts and His ways. Well, it starts with going to Christ, considering who He is, having His righteousness credited to you. And then you'll find that everything comes with it you too will begin to become like Him. You'll find His commandments not burdensome, 1 John 5. His commandments are not burdensome to us. They're our delight. Paul said, I delight to do the law of God according to the inward man. His will will become precious to you. And you will find new enablement to walk in this kind of righteousness. There's the question. I close with a point now of clarification. You have to hear this. If you've got nothing at all this morning, you need to get this, okay? To all of us here for a mess of sinners, this sermon has been about one of the marks of those who have already been regenerated, born again, and saved by the grace of God. The Sermon on the Mount is addressed to those who have already become the Lord's disciples. But now I must say this, unless anyone misunderstand Christianity. We must never allow ourselves to think for a moment that we can establish our righteousness on the basis of our own merit or our own pattern of life or our own pursuit of positive righteousness. I'm not paving my way or earning my keep in the Christian life. I'm not hoping that my good is going to outweigh my bad. Or if I hunger and thirst for righteousness enough, God will accept me. The gospel does not say Sinner, you need to want righteousness enough. You need to hunger more for righteousness. 
need to thirst more for righteousness, and then we can have a conversation. No, the gospel says, oh, sinner, come home. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is full and free pardon and all sufficient merit to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. And He will be pleased in a moment to justify you and make you right in the sight of a holy God, not by what you've done, not by your thirstings and hungerings after righteousness, but through faith in what Jesus Christ has done in your place. His righteousness is all our hope. His obedience is all our hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Don't put your hope and trust in your life lived in conformity to the will of God. Put your hope and trust in the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what you will then find, for those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, have been given the gifts of repentance and faith, have put their trust in God and have had credited to them a righteousness not their own, what you will find is by the Spirit's power you too will begin to walk in righteousness. And you will find in yourself new appetites and new cravings. Where did that come from? Some of you sitting here, if you weren't a Christian, if you had not been stopped in your sinful life, you wouldn't be within a thousand leagues of a church like this. You wouldn't find anything precious about singing a cappella songs or listening to some guy stand up here and talk to us for an hour. You wouldn't give yourself to reading the Scriptures day by day. These new appetites have come, new hungerings and thirstings and aches of the soul. Where'd they come from? They come through the work of God's Spirit in your life. May the Lord more and more cause us to be marked by this kind of hungering and thirsting for a life lived in conformity to the will of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Let's pray together. Father, we do believe and confess again that our hope is in nothing other than what the Lord Jesus has done in our place. Lord, none of us would, none of us could stand before your face, stand before your bar, stand before you as our judge, and plead our own righteousness to bear us safely through. We say to you, Father, we're not hoping in our good outweighing our bad. We're not hoping in our deeds. We put our faith and trust only in what Jesus has done in our stead, trusting in his all-sufficient merit. Lord, we know from your word that all those who are in Christ, they will, by your Spirit's help and through the work of regeneration, begin to put off the deeds of the flesh, put on obedience to Christ. We thank you for this work that you've begun in us. We thank you for giving us new longings for what is truly lovely and good and right. We thank you for you undertaking to plant within us those hungerings and thirstings for righteousness. Oh, Lord, make us to be even more hungry and thirsty than we've been, to pursue righteousness of life and godliness of character and closeness to Jesus and conformity to your will with greater zeal and greater
devotion than we yet have. We pray that the members of this church, that all those who are in Christ gathered here this morning, that we would all crave holiness of life, that we would all in truth put our sins to death, remove any obstacle that stands in the way of the kind of character and life that's pleasing to you and becoming of those who follow so righteous a one. We pray that we would be ever marked by holiness. We would put to our own lips and to our own hearts that prayer of the Scottish minister 200 years ago. Lord, we pray that you would make us to be as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.